You are listening to Russia on the Record, a podcast from the Moscow Times. President Vladimir Putin has formally submitted his candidate registration documents to the Central Election Commission and officially entered his fifth presidential race. Putin's campaign is unfolding amid what may be the most challenging time of his 23 years in power. The war in Ukraine has been going on for almost two years, and sanctions and Russia's isolation are gradually damaging the economy. In this episode, we will discuss what platform Putin is promoting for his new campaign and the challenges he could face before the election in March. Joining us is Margarita Zavatskaya, a senior research fellow at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. We are quite sure that uh, Putin will be named as the winner of this election. Why does the Kremlin still feel the need to conduct an election campaign uh, when he's, uh, well, it's, it's quite sure that Putin is going to win it? Well, it's my favorite question since the, I've been studying authoritarian elections or elections under authoritarian conditions, to be more precise. Well, motivations of different autocrats may vary. So since now it's not okay to kind of, you know, have a modern state without any democratically looking like institutions, including elections, parliamentarism, political partisans, et cetera. So it's one motivation, but it's only on the surface. So the kind of deeper motivation for autocrats hold elections, including Vladimir Putin, he is no terribly different from the rest. Let's not exoticize him or kind of not put him on pedestal in this sense. So he's as a regular dictator, personalist dictator as anyone else, any other dictators in this world. The first function, if I can put it this way, is to send a signal. And there are different audiences with this kind of signal. So the very fact that kind of the conduct of elections, electoral campaign, et cetera, et cetera, is a powerful signal, first of all, to his own inner circle. So those who support him. By electoral, by, by electoral means, by economic means, financial means, and so on and so forth. So these people should always get kind of reconfirmation that he's still capable of conducting the tasks of serving the so-called of like, you know, the focal point. So he's the one who is above the fight, right? So he's the one who helps elites to coordinate to solve the economic, political issues, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of, you know, test drive for him personally, whether he and his vertical is capable of still providing these results. It doesn't matter whether these electoral results are going to be fair or whether they would reflect the true will of the people. It doesn't matter. What it really matters is that he's capable of doing this physically, administratively, politically, electorally. So the second function, so he basically sending the, I mean, Putin and, and the Central Election Commission, whoever is working for him in this endeavor, to send the signal to the opposition so that any resistance is futile. So it doesn't matter what you do. So we still can actually get the results we get. It doesn't matter whether it's kind of, you know, it's going to be obtained both through violent means, through electoral clientelism, through promises, through repressions. So it doesn't matter. So this is what we get in the end. So we win the battle. So that's the message the Russian opposition should get or the opposition-minded voters should receive that. Yes, you can stick to whatever you think about the war, about other things, but this is what you get. So you're a minority, just shut up. So that's the message. And finally, the swing voters, those who are kind of, you know, they still need to get a picture that everything is normal. So election is a part of a normal political routine. If elections are canceled or postponed, it clearly means that something is off. So for instance, in, in the Ukraine, Zelensky, postpone elections. So there are like lots of debates about that. But the idea is that like, this is the state of war. It's emergency. It's not the time for this kind of endeavor. So we're not in a position. So, well, when it comes to Russia, so it's the situation quite the opposite. So really, clearly, the power need to send the signal that life goes on. There's no need to worry. Everything is under control. 
Putin announced his uh, candidacy while speaking with a Russian military officer who was previously a separatist fighter in eastern Ukraine. Does the way he revealed uh, this information contain uh, any hidden messages? First of all, I would strongly recommend not to take whatever the president, the current president of Russia is saying, to take it for granted since the uh, previous messages and promises are very rarely I would say, like, to come true and actually quite the opposite. So remember what happened to the draft. So he promised that it's not going to happen. And actually it did happen, et cetera, et cetera. So I wouldn't actually put more weight to that conversation as we should. So let's be extremely cautious since the primary motivation of Vladimir Putin is to stay in power by all means possible. It's not really important whether he sticks to his own words or he doesn't. This time Putin chose to run as a self-nominated candidate. Why uh, do you think he chose this uh, this way instead of representing the United Russia Party, for example, as he did for the previous elections? The explanation is quite simple. Putin extremely rarely publicly relies on the United Russia Party as his electoral vehicle. So this is a technological trick in a sense, since United Russia is not terribly popular among, with the Russian population, right? So that's the reason actually not to kind of, you know, increase the risks of spoiler reputation or avoiding unnecessary association. So this is a kind of a reputational risk aversion in a sense. But again, let's not take it as a real intention to get rid of United Russia, since it's clearly not true. United Russia is a party of power. What does it mean? It means that this is a technical, I would say, party that met, that allows the Russian government and the president personally to implement whatever legislation he wants. So this party still has some bargain. So since it maintains its majority in, with the state Russian Duma and also in the majority of, in all actual Russian regional legislature, et cetera, et cetera. So it's still is kind of a powerful administrative vehicle, first of all, right? So not political, but administrative vehicle. And uh, what, in your opinion, is the real level of support for Putin among Russians and what percentage of the vote might he officially receive in the election? Well, my bet would be like uh, whatever comes like above 80%. So like to say at least. So of course, it may look a bit way too modest. But again, so like whatever would kind of send the signal of overwhelming electoral victory. Again, so it doesn't matter whether it's fin fair. And what's the real support among the Russians? That's the trickiest part. So when we, we're talking about political support in any state, so like Russia is, in this sense, I wouldn't exoticize Russian voters. They are not dramatically different for any other voters in any other country. Well, there are kind of you no know, core support group, then there is like the opposition, and then there is someone in between, so-called, like uh, in Russian people call it balota or swing voters, if you use them, we stick to American politics terms, etc. So when it comes to like genuine support, so the, it's extremely difficult for us to know since people can vote strategically sometimes, or they can abstain. So we basically don't just observe their behavior. We don't know where they are and who they are. And of course, we can't really rely on official electoral outcomes, right? But we can rely on surveys. But also surveys a double-edged sword when it comes to the wartime dictatorship. So surveys, they kind of, they also do not reflect the genuine support. They may reflect some kind of genuine support of approximation if we use special techniques for that. So smart sociologists came up with the ways how to tease out uh, more information or I would say more plausible information. For instance, using the so-called least experiments. When people are not asked, so whether you support Vladimir Putin like in an upfront way, in a straightforward way, respondents are expected to kind of, you know, pick from the list of names 
who they genuinely like or they don't like. So basically, there is no way we can de-anonymize those people. So it's pretty safe. Usually, this technique is used for victims of domestic violence. So when people are reluctant or victims cannot really say what they, so they, they've experienced, so this is why this trick is usually kind of a more sensitive and more reasonable approach to kind of you know deeply traumatized respondents. Well, we're not here to say that all Russian respondents are deeply traumatized by Putin, although they are, <laughs> So, but in one way or another. But this is a way uh, to tease out this information. So according to this kind of research, the support is usually like 10, if not more, uh, percentage points lower than whatever is reported by Levada or Siom or other Russian pollsters. It's still a lot, but it's not the majority. A very similar thing was contacted by my colleagues from from Germany, Philip Chepkovsky and Max Schaub. So they asked about the support for the war. That tends to correlate with support for Putin, not entirely, but to a great extent. And they found out that the uh, support for the war is still like a majority more than 50%, but it's not 80%. So still we see these margins. So it's, and it was the beginning of the war, right? So now we're one year and a half after. So, well, people's opinions are changing. Levada using their like very, a more blunt tool, I would say, because they just ask up front without, you know, taking any, resorting to any special techniques. So they still get the kind of decline for the, uh, to the support of war, of the war. But if they report the decline in support for Putin, so this is the place where the major danger lies. So we remember that back in the days, well before the full-scale invasion, in the mid-April, of April, if I'm not mistaken, in 2020, during the COVID times. So uh, Levada and Siom and other posters reported like a dramatic decline in Putin's support. And then we remember what happened next. So it was a time when the Russian states and authorities demonstrated that they really take these numbers seriously. So they do whatever possible to keep them like above a certain threshold. So like 80% is something they're happy with. If it's below, so they become very concerned. If it's like 60 something, it's no good. It's good for a democratic state. It's extremely bad for a dictatorship. So that's the kind of logic behind. So yes, these numbers are mostly fake one way or another. So some people may lie, some people may abstain from participating in surveys. But on the other hand, some opposition-minded voters, they also prefer to be mentioned in the surveys because this is the only way how they can be heard. So if they can't really go to the polls and vote and cast their ballot and have their vote count, so they can basically just share their opinion with the uh, whoever comes from Tsiom or Levada. So it's another way. So it's I wouldn't say that people are really kind of scared of surveys. So they are rather willing to have their voice recorded somewhere in the archives. So, yeah, the situation is quite tricky. So the genuine support is lower than whatever we observe from the pollster, but doesn't mean that it's, it's low. So you mean when uh, Putin, according to the polls, lost in popularity in spring 2020, then it resulted in actually the changes he introduced in the constitution, the so-called constitutional referendum, which allows now Vladimir Putin to stay in power till 2036. Just to correct, so in terms of causality, so it's not like they observed the decline in survey in political support, and then they decide, okay, now it's, it's the right time to kind of conduct referendums. So of course, the referendum was already in the air, but then they saw these observed these results. So I think they just kind of, they lifted the COVID-related bans because I think the presidential administration kind of suspected that this is the, uh, the quarantine regime that affected this sort of decline. So that's why they kind of, you know, rolled back to the... I would say, more free regime of, of movement in the country during the pandemic. So, yeah, just to, to be clear. On December 14, uh, Putin held his annual press conference and public call-in for the first time since the war in Ukraine began. Did this event uh, give us any hints about what his campaign platform will look like? 
it clearly does give us a lot of information how it's going to look like. So together with my colleagues, we are currently doing the uh, monitoring of TV stations and Russian TV channels. So what kind of, you know, what amount of time is devoted to cover Putin as the president, as the current acting president and Putin as an electoral candidate. We're taking into consideration six Russian channels, like the largest ones with the largest audiences. And we basically came up with the preliminary conclusion, but I'm pretty sure it's going to stay the same in the months to come of the presidential campaign, that whatever messages or news messages are related to the Putin as a candidate, they tend to be extremely positive, like way more positive, even compared to those news messages when Putin is covered as the acting president. Although they also tend to be quite, I would say, like praising and appreciating whatever he does. And obviously these events at the press conference and the direct line with the Russian citizens also played a huge role. For instance, some news messages, some new broadcasters, they covered what action, some kind of a follow-up after the press conference. So yes, this is what kind of question Putin received. They, they took a pause of a couple of days. And then there was another news issue on, on Sunday, like a prime time. 8 p.m. on Sunday. So just to demonstrate the voters, okay, this is what actually has been done in two days after the press conference actually held or three days. At the press conference, Putin discussed egg prices almost as much as he discussed the war. Does this suggest that he will minimize discussions of the war during his campaign? Well, we clearly see the tendency of kind of disassociating Putin as a person, as a politician from the war. This tendency has been observed before. And we basically, it's pretty much the same communication strategy at the moment, if we take the the Russian TV channels with the largest audiences, right? Whatever, as far as the war is concerned, usually Putin is not mentioned. Usually it's MOD or other military officers or whoever is in charge. So their names are in the air, but it's not Putin personally, extremely rarely. Only if the discussion is not about the battlefields or like war heroes, but like, for instance, benefits to the veterans of I know, Luhansk People's Republic or something like that. So as soon as it comes to political redistribution, so, well, here we see Putin that he gives away money and he promises mortgages at extremely low rates, et cetera, et cetera. So this is where actually Putin steps in. When it comes to like real war, there is no Putin there. During the direct line, Putin also spent a lot of time discussing about family values and large families saying that happiness lies in children. Will his 2024 campaign be his most conservative one yet? Uh, Does the Russian Orthodox Church, which promotes his conservative rhetoric, have more influence on the president than ever before? It's really hard to tell what's happening in the such closed, consolidated authoritarian regime since we can't really observe what kind of communications, how often Putin is exposed to certain people and certain ideologies. But if we can speculate a bit about that, so clearly that would be both, I think, reasonable if we understand anything about how, I mean, Putin's mind has been changing. Of course, we can't really read his mind, but we can again speculate. So yes, this is going to be like more conservative campaign. It doesn't mean that in the reality, the state really supports traditional values. So while sending half of the Russian fathers uh, to the war. So basically it's the uh, quite the opposite to supporting family values, right? So kids are growing without the uh, uh, breadwinners and, 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 and fathers. So yeah, this is a kind of a idiosyncratic approach. But yes, in terms of rhetoric, it's going to be even more conservative than we used to, and especially given the uh, crackdown on LGBTQI community. So obviously, it's a clear sign, it's a clear signal that yeah, it's going to be super conservative. But again, only in words. 
And during Putin's direct line, several critical questions sent via SMS flashed on the screen behind him. For example, there were such questions. How can one move through the Russia that they talk about on Channel One? Or who will be president after you? Or what is our country fighting for in Ukraine? Do you think this is an oversight, a rebellion by state TV employees? Or uh, was it all choreographed by the presidential administration? I think it doesn't really matter whether it was genuine or it was written by real people. So even if it was, so it looked quite plausible, right? So I think it's kind of, you know, the very phenomenon of critical citizens when people are unhappy with the existing government is quite normal to any politics. And I guess it's not a, the question of choreography. It's mostly a question of kind of showing that any, the very format of press conference in direct line kind of presumes that people would be unhappy with certain things. So perhaps they filter out like more, I would say, angry and provocative comments and they sort of let like filter in filtered in the comments um, it's pure speculation of course i have no idea just to show that yes so putin is still responsible just to kind of you know add a little bit of spice to the event to see that yes we still kind of you know allow critical comments to come in and then see how the president is going to react to them in a few days right to follow up the x prices story so i think x were mentioned even more frequently than putin himself so this kind of thing so i think it's like it's a part of the uh just to demonstrate that these are legitimate elections in a sense at least they look like real elections with a little bit of with a pinch of criticism in general how do you compare these press conference and call-in which have always been significant events for Putin to those of previous years? Well, I think the electoral campaign usually is a good reflection of the overall changes in political regime in general. And what we know from the like overall political regime change dynamics perspective is that now Russian regime is at its lowest state in terms of like on the scale from running from autocracy, full autocracy to full democracy. So it's super close to be full autocracy at the moment. And at this stage, So basically, elections, they sort of loses their ability to serve as a tool for cooptation, especially when it comes to uh, executive elections. It's just only one seat that is being right, uh, an offer. And basically, there is uh, it bears more of a kind of signaling slash, I don't know, like a muscle flexing function rather than like real, real thing, even uh, from the authoritarian perspective, authoritarian regime survival's perspective. So these elections, of course, is a continuation of a big rehearsal elections this uh, last September. And the last elections to the, uh, according to Golos, uh, the Russian election, uh, domestic monitors and other observers were the dirtiest elections ever. So again, even by the Russian standards, they already were like pretty bad. And there is a significant growth in violence. Usually kind of blatant violence was more of an exception, even like 10 or five years ago. Now it's not the case anymore. To send a military summon to an observer who was kicked out of the polling station, who tried to observe elections. So it comes a new normal. And this is kind of a punishment for any attempt to see what, what's going on in the polls. So basically, yeah, so, well, if I can say anything about the campaign in general, so it's going to be as dirty as the September elections, if not worse. And we actually, we are very likely to see a new low here. Yekaterina Dunsova, an independent pro-peace candidate, has faced various obstacles since announcing her election campaign. For example, one of her supporters was detained in Siberia after one of her first campaign events. Is it the Kremlin really afraid of a candidate who is virtually unknown to the general public? Thanks for this question. So Yekaterina Dunsova is a, looks like a black horse to me in some sense because she's not a, like a very prominent candidate and she also received criticism from both sides. Like one people, like the opposition 
or standing in positioners believe that she might be a Kremlin supported person or like a technical candidate or whatever. So it doesn't seem to be the case. So I think she's more like a Yulia Galamina style person or a politician. So she basically, she's independent. She relies on, um, she dwells sort of kind of, you know, develops her campaign around municipal issues like accommodation, housing, roads, et cetera, et cetera. So communications. So in this sense, she's like a typical representative, like a little bit like older generation, not in terms of age, but in terms of the political awakening or socialization. So she belongs to the uh, that kind of, you know, generation of politicians and public figures who grew up out of this municipal playground, if I can call it this way. And they may look a little bit naive to the like old guard of Russian oppositionists who are either in jail or somewhere abroad. And for them, of course, she doesn't look like serious or who is she who she is. But on the other hand, so she's also kind of she doesn't really pose a significant threat to the president at the moment. And basically, she's in a certain sense in a favorable position that she cannot be repressed publicly, at least now. Because during the election presidential campaign, outright repression towards potential opponents, especially women, although we know that the Russian regime has been treating women, so I mean, if not, I mean, probably even worse than men sometimes, like let's recall Lilia Chanesheva and others. But still, so it's not a kind of good message to send before the polling day. So I think the timing is the key here to explain why she's not kind of witnessing and experiencing as much repression and pressure compared to Navalny and Nevbeka structures. So that would be my kind of key question here. But again, so she's kind of Yulia Galamina style candidate. Uh, it's very interesting to look, to observe what's going on there. And I'm actually even surprised that she's still kind of, you know, walking in the streets freely. So it's my personal perception because usually the rule of the game is that you just don't kind of, you know, even poke your nose. So, and I think it's a matter of time when she's going to face more serious consequences. So, but yeah, if it's genuine, sincere, this is an example of civic uh, heroism, if I can call it this way, and dignity. Very interesting. Do you expect any other opposition candidates to run for these elections? Like oh, lots of discussions whether Grigory Ivlinsky is going to present. Uh, so what are your expectations? We can see some surprises, but the majority of people who kind of, you know, hinted the fact that they may run for the presidency. So basically, they are people who are more or less expected, including Grigory Yevlinsky. So we know that he's already kind of, he lost the majority of his opposition voters even before the big war started. And now I think given his rhetoric, so he definitely lost the younger generation, uh, especially anti-war voters. So he's a truthless candidate vis-a-vis uh, -vis Putin. So if he participates, it's not going to hurt. If he doesn't participate, it's not going to change anything. So in this, this case, I mean, the lineup of those who would be allowed to run, this is a kind of a question of secondary importance for me. As far as I can judge from like previous research and focus groups and discussions with like Russian political my like political exiles who left Russia after 20, February 24, of course, Yvlinsky is never mentioned. He's treated with like lots of despise. He's basically like a trait of Russian democracy, basically. So it's, if you can look at the like most hated people, maybe with on the list together with Putin, so Yevlinsky is going to be like somewhere, maybe not as bad as Putin, but like quite close because he's a betrayer, he's a traitor to the democratic ideals, etc. He's supporting Putin, so he tried to negotiate, he's collaborator. So, well, he has a pretty ambivalent reputation. But of course, it doesn't mean that he still doesn't enjoy support from those who actually remember Uh, Yavlinsky when he was in his best political shape. And of course, these kind of, these sort of uh, voters are like diehard Yabloka voters in St. Petersburg and other places that perhaps would still stick to to that person, no matter how cooperative he became after a certain time in his political career. 
when Putin announced his campaign um, decision, the mother of a Russian soldier who died in the Donbass was also present and spoke in support of him. This came as the wives of mobilized soldiers fighting in Ukraine are becoming more active in their protests and are launching groups on social media to demanding the return of their husbands from the war. For example, Putin is actively criticized by Way Home, Putidamoy, one of the largest of these groups. Do you think Putin is aware of and concerned about these groups, and will he try to engage with them during his campaign? I think so. Of course, it's like it's really hard to walk in other people's shoes, but this is something I, I would do and uh, our technologists would do. For example, given these protests, they're becoming more and more serious, right? Despite all the threats and, again, so like kind of publicly prosecuting and ex exerting violence, implementing violence to wives of Russian soldiers would send a pretty bad signal, negative signals to those in the battlefields and in general to the Russian audience, right? So this is why, again, so like quite similar to Dunsova style. So it's not the right time to prosecute those women. So in this sense, they have very special window of opportunity to speak their minds and request and beg for something. It's a pretty dramatic and bitter situation. And obviously, I would expect to see like some like grateful mother who already lost her son, so which is a family tragedy to kind of still demonstrate deference and respect and gratitude to Russian leader. And I guess the, the idea behind it's not like that poor woman is wrong and that she was basically kind of fooled into participating in this in this event. So the idea is that so just simple psychology, we even don't need to be political analysts to understand that. So if someone lost something so or someone, usually it's extremely frustrating to believe that that loss was for nothing. And you still post hoc try to rationalize that and basically kind of, you know, still attempt to believe that it was for something, something which was worthwhile. So it's a kind of self-defense psychological mechanism. So if you can, I mean, I'm now stepping outside of my own expertise, but this is how I, I explain participation of people like her in the events like this. So it's kind of half technologies, half, well, sincere expression of people's opinions. And that woman, I think she was pretty sincere in the way she behaved. So you think that also Putin is aware of those groups of their wives and will try to cooperate with them somehow? What would we expect? This is interesting. So perhaps that was a kind of attempt of, to signal that this is the way to behave or look at them. They already lost someone. So this is the biggest fear. I think all these, these protesting women have, and they still kind of, you know, express gratitude. So this is the right approach. Or maybe it's also not even the signal to those protesting, but the signal to those who observe the protests. This is how we should behave or how they should behave, not the way they actually do it now. But if we look at the, um, for instance, Russian field, one of the Russian independent pollster published interesting results, those protesters in general have pretty like a good deal of support. So still it's more than 50%, like around 50%. It's quite a lot. Of course, like 40 something or 37%, if I'm not wrong. So they believe that actually this is not the way to kind of, you know, express your grievances and express your political claims, etc. So this is very interesting kind of a division. So these women are clearly enjoying more support than Russian presidential administration would expect. But still, also, if you look at the slogans they have, one of them is like, you know, if you serve yourself, so please let other people to serve. It doesn't look like a slogan that would unite other mothers, right? So no one wants to kind of, you know, have their sons or husbands or fathers uh, to be fighting in the in the deadly battles. So in this sense, I think so if that movement would slightly change their rhetoric and become more inclusive and more like, you know, they would have more 
potential to have more allies among the the Russian lay people. So, and uh, that would be a very interesting development. But we'll see what's gonna what's gonna happen because they clearly want to stay in their lane, not to kind of you know have clearly anti-war political claims. They're super cautious in their rhetoric, if you notice. So, and they always emphasize that the public demonstration rally is the last resort. So, we would prefer to negotiate. But we want to have like real solutions, not like blah, 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 or some kind of uh, formal responses from the authorities. It's potentially contentious developments, but we'll see how it's going to work out. Is there anything that may shake Putin's popularity and prevent him from winning the elections? Like, I don't know, like some bad news from the battlefield? Well, personal dictatorships, they are actually way more vulnerable than one would think of. Literally, any event can spark the fire. This is a question of kind of a combination of the uh, you know right time, right events, right people in the right place. So this is kind of a it's really hard to predict. So usually this kind of dictatorship they look quite solid and, and stable, and they actually are up to a certain point. But also they have a tendency to crumble extremely fast. They can last if we kind of you know if we believe in statistics and to the extent we believe in statistics. So usually such regimes they actually last as long as the dictator's life lasts. So as simple as that, because they're personalist. Of course, it doesn't guarantee that the next regime is not going to be democratic. It's not going to be the same kind of regime. It can be a military junta. It can be my colleague Grigory Golosov wrote an excellent piece on that. So what what to expect if anything happens? So this is kind of a tricky question. So, but yes. Yeah, so my point is that so if we understand anything from comparing with other authoritarian regimes, so personalist regimes may last very long, but it doesn't mean that they are not fragile. They are. So I'm not harbinger of any good news, unfortunately, and it's very shameful to be in this capacity. But the Russian political regime is, as it's the most repressive law ever in its uh, modern history, and this is something that needs to be taken into account. This is a dangerous country for any independent competitor who actually kind of, you know, wants to participate in that. But on the other hand, it's also kind of a usual election, electoral time in some very rare circumstances may serve as a window of opportunity or like a very, very teeny tiny window of opportunity. Of course, I don't myself, I don't really believe that this is the right time for that. But the Russian opposition groups, I mean, the opposition abroad, like, like Katz or Navalny supporters and others, they're also coming up with their own strategies, how to deal with this election campaign, how to take as much as possible, given all the limitations they're experiencing at the moment. So I would not advocate for any of those strategies. So the Navalny strategy, I mean, some more sound to me as political scientist makes more sense than, than others. But anyway, so whatever supports voters here in these hard times, I mean, that would be a soul-saving practice, if I can call it this way. But anyway, so yeah, I don't expect any surprises and any revolutions or protests. I would love to be wrong, but that's the way it is. That's how personal dictatorships work. That's the final episode of the year. We will continue covering the election and other key news from Russia in 2024. Have a happy new year and thank you for listening to Russia on the Record.